five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Before we get to today's guest, a quick word on one of the ways SpaceQ can help your organization. If you're hosting an event and need to drive attendance, then why not advertise through SpaceQ, either through our website, this podcast, or both? Usually all it takes is one or a couple of people registering for your event to pay for your campaign. And your benefits don't end at registrations. By advertising on SpaceQ, you'll get increased exposure for your brand. Contact me at mark, with a C, at spaceq.ca to request our media rate card and get a quote. Today on SpaceQ, I have the pleasure of talking with Graham Gibbs. Graham joined the Canadian Space Agency in 1988 and spent 22 years in Washington, where he first served as the head of the Canadian Space Agency office at the NASA Space Station Freedom Program Office in Reston, Virginia, between 1988 and 1993. He then became Canada's Counselor to Space Affairs from the Canadian Space Agency at the Canadian Embassy. While representing the Canadian Space Program in Washington, Graham was involved in several multinational initiatives. These included the International Space Station Program, including the negotiations to bring Russia into the partnership in which he was head of the agency-level negotiating team and deputy head of the government-level delegation. He was also a member of the Canadian delegation led by Environment Canada for the creation of the International Group on Earth Observations and he was a core member of the Canadian Space Agency delegation in the development by 14 space agencies of the Global Exploration Strategy and the resulting International Space Exploration Coordination Group. Graham returned to Canada in August 2010 to take up the position of Senior Policy Advisor in the Canadian Space Agency Ottawa Government Liaison Office until his retirement in 2012. Welcome, Graham, to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we discuss the substance of the Space Advisory Report, let's take a look at the bigger picture. The government is planning this fall to unveil a new space strategy. Based on our preliminary exchanges, you have an issue with that, at least in terms of a strategy versus a space policy or a national space policy. Um, what's the distinct distinction between the government's space strategy versus a national space policy? Well, thank you, Mark, for asking that question. Um, but perhaps I should start by saying I was very, very encouraged with the SAB's report and the results of their consultations. And um, I think that was very well reflected in their, or oh, I should say, very digestible, as in short report. Um, we all like to read short reports these days. Um, and I, I admit I had rather hoped that the minister would have uh, called for them to consult on a national space policy rather than a national space strategy. But with respect to um, the space report itself, um, it, you're right, it is, it is uh, brief as it were. Um, as it should be. As it should be. And it was uh, put together quite quickly. 
Um, they didn't have much time to do consultations. Do you think that the, and I do believe there were close to 200 people that participated in the consultations. Do you think that we, they got enough material and, con, you know, heard from enough people to actually put together uh, a well thought out document? Oh, I think it was extremely well thought out. One of the best I've seen in recent years, that's for sure. Um, it covered all the major points. And as we will discuss later in this podcast, um, it, it also brought up um, issues that we've dealt with in the past uh, as well. But, but you want to talk about my views on a national policy versus a strategy. Um, there'll be people that think I'm nitpicking, but my 22 years in Washington did teach me the difference between a national space policy and a space strategy. Um, and it's, it's hard to define, although I did come across a definition that I quite like by a Stephen Dobson of Coventry University in the UK. And he says, if you think about achieving something as, evolve, as involving ways, means, and ends, policy is often engaged in the ways, strategy is concerned with the means, and finally planning is focused on the delivery of the ends. Uh, and I thought that was a pretty good definition. Um, I couldn't come up with one myself. <laughs> I just intuitively knew from my 22 years in Washington uh, that strategies tend to be departmental, not government-wide. Um, and a national space policy brings together all the players within the government, um, both as if no, no matter whether they're users or enablers. I'm hoping that that we will eventually get to having a national space policy. Um, your listeners may not know, but Canada's never has only ever had one national space policy, and that was in. Let me check my notes, if I may. 1974. Uh, yeah. 1974. Yes. Um, Which is a long the, time ago. The then Ministry of, of Science and uh, uh, Ministry of State for Science and Technology, MOST, as it was called in those days came out um, in uh, came out with a national space policy in 2014 we did have the space policy framework which I thought was a great first step to and I thought that would be the the, 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 the stepping stone to producing a national space policy because that's kind of how you start you come up with a, an overall objectives framework so I thought the National Space Policy Framework was a, was a great start, but it wasn't followed up on. Um, as, as, as we all know, since almost the beginning of Canada's space program, we've been guided by long-term space plans. And there have been three in uh, 86, 94, and 2003. Um, and I was actually, and there was then the, the one that we worked on, and I was involved uh, very heavily in both the 94, the 2003, and the 2008 long-term space plan. Ah, yes, that, that was the famous one, uh, Steve which McLean. Was exact, what it was exactly, I, I was on the core team, so I knew exactly what was in that, and it was exactly what we needed following uh, from the 2003 long-term space plan, which was near, nearing the end of its life. Unfortunately, it was dead on arrival in the Harper government, uh, and it was just a shocking thing to have happened, because it, we were right for it. It was uh, That was actually quite interesting, because 
Uh, and I remember it vividly because when Stephen McLean was appointed, this that was, was his he, mandate. That was his mandate. One go out mandate. there, and it was, right. it was in the speech that first day. Yeah. You will go out there. You will put together, meet with stakeholders, put together a long-term space plan, uh, which he did. And we did. I think we probably worked on that for, I don't know, I'm trying to guess back, maybe maybe as much as two years. Um uh, and I was fortunate, even though I was in Washington, Steve had me on the core team because he'd seen the kinds of studies and reports I'd done before. And, uh, and the fact that I'd been involved in the other long-term space. I wasn't involved in the, the consultations that were going on in Canada, yeah. obviously, but I did the international angle right. for, for that long-term space. And why do you think it was shelved? Money. <laughs> yes, that's what I heard. <laughs> simply put. Money. The Very government, simple. The government was bound and determined to... Uh, uh, the Harper government was bound and determined to cut costs. And, and we'll be talking know, about that when we talk, talk about education later on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of people uh, who are not part of the community, and even some who are in the community uh, who don't pay attention to it, uh, don't realize that this Canadian Space Agency's base funding was actually cut by the Conservative government from the original, not original, but the $300 million Yep. Base stable a base funding in 1999 to uh, down to 260 million now. Yep. 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 So, um, <laughs> so when St- yes, and Steve McLean when he when when you know the long term space plan at that time was put together, it had some pretty big uh, ticket items, and yeah, so dead on arrival. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, sadly, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Sadly. Having said all of that, I think the development of a new space strategy is a very welcome. Uh, welcome news, especially if it comes, and, and only if it comes with funds in the next federal budget. Um, when we'll just have to wait and see on that. But perhaps there is time to develop a national space policy by the, for the, in time for the federal budget in 2019. You couldn't develop a national space policy in the nine months or the six months that we've got left. It takes way too much longer than that to develop a national space policy with all the consultations required. But maybe we could develop one in time for the 2019 federal budget, which just happens to be an election year as well. Right. Um, so the space strategy then would be sort of an intermediate step. Yes, it could lay the it could it could lay the framework. It could lay the framework for, for this for a national, national space, space policy, policy. Even though that's kind of back to front, but never mind. Um, from, because a I, from a political perspective, yeah. If the government follows through with what it says it's going to do, which is actually fund, provide some additional funding. Um, then uh, with that, and if they were to go ahead and start doing putting together a national space policy, then from the optics of politics going into the next election, it certainly helps them. Yeah, I would think so. I would, yeah. Even though the, the space sector may not be, you know, it, it's big economically. Yeah. But it doesn't get a lot of recognition with the general public, unfortunately. I mean, our astronaut program is known, the Canada Arm is known, uh, but the public don't know the, the, the sheer breadth of the Canadian space program, which is, uh, I mean, when I was in Washington, we would always admit to our major colleagues that we, we, we knew we were a small spacefaring nation, but they always treated us as a major spacefaring nation because we were into all the major disciplines except space launch. And actually, quite interesting, uh, interestingly, uh, not too long ago at a conference in Washington, I believe, uh, John Gerstermeyer, I, I yep. think it was. Who Bill Gerstermeyer. 
Uh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Uh, he um, who is still there, surprisingly. <laughs> well, we'll he's see. Way, he's way beyond his retirement date. He's told me that he's. Now, <laughs> I knew Bill very, very, yeah. very well when I was in Washington. I mean, he said that uh, um, Canada. Uh, was put into the critical path for the International Space Station. Absolutely. And if it wasn't for our contribution, then the space station wouldn't be there today. It wouldn't have been built. Yeah. They couldn't have built it. So yeah. so we certainly we, we get treated with respect internationally. Yeah. We will put on, hey, but we've also put on the critical path for the James Webb Space Telescope. True. The fine guidance sensor is the thing that points that telescope. Yeah. I heard a wonderful anecdote on a, on a press conference, oh, it was years ago now, by the James Webb Space Telescope project manager. was on a big press event where they had a mock-up of the James Webb Space Telescope um, on the mall in Washington. Oh, yes. And when he was referring to the Canadian fine, gu- fine guidance sensor, he said, imagine if you were uh, sitting in Los Angeles and you had a, a, a pointer pen. And he said, and you pointed it and were able to point it to the the third floor down left window pane of the Empire State Building. That's how accurate it is. It's yeah. pretty phenomenal. Pretty phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. But going forward... Can we go back to the uh, sure. to my to my hobby project? I have to confess, I, I'm, okay. a, I'm a policy wonk, uh, and I became more and more of a policy wonk um, after I left the private sector yeah. in avionics and joined the Canadian Space Program. Um, so I, I have to tell this story sure. on that basis that I am an avowed policy wonk, a space policy wonk. Um, so when I was in Washington, of course, I had a mandate to study the U.S. Um, space policies, which mm. I did and analyzed and reported on. But as a hobby project, I spent many, many evenings also looking at the space policies of um, other spacefaring nations. And it was just, it was a hobby project. It wasn't part of my mandate. Yeah. So I wrote lots of notes and typed them up and just kept them. And then after I retired, I decided I needed a, a project of some sort. So I dug out these notes and put together uh, what ended up being a 54-page article, which was titled, uh, An Analysis of the Space Policies for the Major Spacefaring Nations and Selecting Selected Emerging Spacefaring Nations. And that was published uh, in the 2012 uh, McGill Annals of Air and Space Law. Um, and I would, that was a... I was really quite proud of the fact that it even got published because, you know, one writes papers and they don't often get published. So um, I was, I was well, with your experience, rather pleased with that. <laughs> so rather pleased with that. So I that, think with your experience, kind of, it wouldn't be too hard to convince But that's where it, kind of where I've been coming from. Yeah. So um, when, when you asked me to do this podcast, I decided to, to dig out some other hobby projects that I had been yeah. working on. And that was um, my idea for how one would go about developing a national space policy and um, no, that's and, this, and this was based on this analysis that I'd done so it right. wasn't just based on the way the US approaches it but also the way other nations, other nations. have approached uh, national space policies so I um I dusted off what I'd written when you told me about this podcast and uh and um I had a relook at a, at a paper I wrote, and I've updated it a little bit, and I've titled it The Rationale and Framework for the Development of a Canadian National Space Policy. And I'm happy to share that with you, and you can share that. It's mine. It's not copyrighted by anybody, uh, um, and you're, you're more than welcome to share that with your readership if they're so listeners, when, if they're interested. So when, we, when I post this podcast, we will add the document uh, to the website. Um, 
I can pretty well assure you that it's going to get circulated. <laughs> well, hopefully, whether be, people agree with you or not. Well, that may be what well, it's a framework. It's not. It's not what it should contain. It is how yeah. you approach developing right. a national. And I have, you know, I've put in some pointers in this. Uh, it's only well. Let's put it this way: the last time we had a national long. space policy, like you said, was nineteen seventy four. So, who in government has expert experience working on something like this? Right. Nobody. Well, that's the other part of the problem because uh, what you'll see in my framework, I'm suggesting that, well, national space policies are usually developed by uh, an arm of either the Prime Minister's office or the President's office. So, in the case of Washington, uh, of the US, it's the office, White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Yeah. Um, so, with all due respect to my erstwhile employer, the Canadian Space Agency, I don't think it would be appropriate for the CSA to lead the development of a national space policy. Obviously, they have to be involved. But well, if you're, I mean, too many, too many departments and uh, have to be consulted and involved, and that, but it's got to be done. It's got to be approached in a non-partisan manner. So I'm thinking that probably it has to come under come under the PMO, but I don't think they have space experts within the PMO. They would uh, have to, to coach. So they, they'll have to engage, you know, they have to bring in quasi non-partisan space experts to help them manage the program, not to do the writing necessarily, but to to, to manage the consultations, which will have to take place government-wide. And, and I, But I, 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 I bring all that up in my... So in would my, you bring in, my, in people from Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada, that department? I mean, they're the well, ones that are obviously would have some expertise or do you let's say pick from you know using their whole of government approach pick people from various departments who have expertise and put them in a room and I haven't well no I mean I'm talking about the 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 the, the oversight committee the people that that um, organize the consultations and so on so a bit bit like the space advisory board you know, I think you need some from in government, but some from outside of government as well. Um, okay. To to help, I'm talking about manage the process. Yes. Um, to then. Um, but isn't uh, help? Uh, you know, when you when you've got ten or twelve government departments around the table, because this would have to be a consensus building uh, approach. Um, but let's go back to the Canadian Space Agency because the Canadian Space Agency Act uh, actually it does give them the responsibility. Yes, it gives yes. the mandate. No, to I, the I, Canadian I, Space Agency. I understand that. I understand. So, um, so could it be that um, uh, it's 2017 and uh, the landscape has changed, space has changed, the players have changed? Um, you know, we have. Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and we have uh, other departments that are need space as a as part of their mandate. So, should we change the Canadian Space Agency Act, update it so that there can be a different mechanism in place to create a national space policy? No, no. As I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I can't remember the exact wording of the act. Um, but I think the CSA, I think I, I think it's more about, I think the, the mandate, if memory serves me correctly, is more about managing the Canadian space program as opposed to 
um, deciding on how it's done. I mean, it's true that the Canadian Space Agency did lead the, long, the efforts for the long-term space plans. Um, but I, I just feel that when you're look, talking about a national space policy, that that it has to be it has to be very multi-partisan if we want to put it that way. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, how you achieve that, I'm not sure. But I'm not sure that you give it to one department. Right. I understand that. So, the scary thought in all of this is, there's lots of smart people in government, but do they have the wherewithal to put something like this together? Um, I mean, in terms I, of putting a committee or somebody to oversee this? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I've been out five years now, so I don't know where the real expertise lies, except yeah. from within DND, Canadian Space Agency, and, you know, the... the somebody pointed out to me, uh, and we'll get into the report in a second, uh, pointed out to me recently that uh, the Space Advisory Board... Uh, the makeup of it, which is, you know, you have academia, you have uh, industry, um, uh, non-governmental organizations, um, and, and it's, it, it, you know, with its mandate, the one area that, that was seemed to be missing, there was nobody from representing D&D or the military side of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, should that's should, that's should there have been somebody on there the, to bring that perspective? I don't. I, well, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it's. Um, I mean, um, we have a lot of dual-use technologies. I mean, radars. That's a classic example. Uh, so, I mean, a. I mean, we have a new defense dual- policy, right? Yeah. So that's already been sort of taken care of, and it has the space. But I assume that the that the space advisory board did consult with DND. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been. I haven't looked at their. The nitty gritty of their consultation process. I, 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 um, I have the list of everybody who was who participated, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll update the podcast if if I'm wrong. But I don't think I saw anybody from from D and D that was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now there might have been some former people from D and D. Well, that's what, well, that's what I'm thinking. Who, that, who are working for you yeah. know, industry now? Right. So right. there could have been that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, d- I thought that was an interesting point that somebody uh, mm-hmm. made out to me. So uh, we've discussed a little bit about um, uh, strategy versus a national space policy. Let's actually get into the report itself because uh, it had two recommendations that were based on uh, six uh, or based on issues that were put into six themes. And the uh, first recommendation uh, is designating space as a national strategic asset. Um, and uh, what was your take on, on, on that? Um, well, it is. It, it absolutely is a strategic asset. Um, and there was somewhere in the report where there was reference to... Critical uh, infrastructure? Critical infrastructure. I was surprised when I read that it it seemed to acknowledge that, that space was now currently officially um, recognized as being part of Canada's critical infrastructure. Well, when I after I returned to Washington, I spent 18 months in the... Uh, CSA's government liaison office, and uh, I recall us 
uh, in many presentations uh, and, and uh, meetings that we held with other government departments and, and others, trying to get the space, uh, the, our, our space sector identified as part of the Canada's critical infrastructure. So. Um, if it's now happened, I'm very pleased to hear that. But I, I think I don't. Uh, remember, I don't remember seeing that anywhere else. Well, okay. So, honest, so there was uh, maybe the, the the space advisory board is referring to the Senate, which earlier this year put out a uh, a report, uh, and in that report it said that. Uh, and it, it was it was uh, the report was dealing with the uh, military, but it did discuss the uh, some of the space assets, and it said that those should be considered critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where the the space advisory board is getting that okay. from, because okay. from my understanding, it isn't. Uh, part of the national no, uh, uh, no infrastructure. formally recognized as being no, 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 and it's actually uh, you know. Um, uh, something. If it uh, was, then it would be part of the infrastructure bank, the new infrastructure bank lending scheme. So, right? so, so, <laughs> so, so let's actually get down to, to if you could, um, what does it actually mean if it becomes a national strategic asset? From a practical perspective. From a practical perspective. Um, well, it obviously means it has to. First of all, you have to decide what parts of it are. Part of our critical infrastructure. I would not consider, for example, uh, the International Space Station and human spaceflight, with all due respect of our, our astronaut <laughs> friends, to be part of our critical infrastructure. So I'm thinking uh, satellite communications, satellite communication, radar sat, AIS, um, those types of um, um, of space assets. Right. Um, which actually leads me to a comment that I read in the, um, if I may. Yeah. Um, oh yes, there was in under theme three. There was a key. There were two key proposals. One of the proposals said procure space services as opposed to owning and operating space systems whenever possible in order to promote private sector investment. Um, I think it's a sound recommendation for those services that have a strong commercial potential, like SACCOMs. Uh, but we need to be cautious when it comes to services critical to Canada's sovereignty and natural security. So, the, the critical infrastructure. This is, this is why I'm going here. Right. Uh, there are also other ways to reduce costs um, to the government, while at the same time promoting mutually beneficial international cooperation. So, I have to tell the radar sat story. Right, yeah. Actually, I'm not that, sure. That, very interesting story, actually. I'm not sure that it's widely known, the full story. So, Radar Sat 1, which was launched in 1995, was launched by NASA, and we had a hugely successful um, launch for data uh, deal. I think NASA got, well, the US government got, I think 15%, if memory serves me correctly, of the Radar Sat 1 data. That that went on for over 10 years. We renewed that um, several times, that agreement, which was initially for just five years. And it was a wonderful relationship between NASA, NOAA, the US Nationalized Service, the Canadianized Service, Environment Canada, the CSA. There was, it was a wonderfully successful uh, cooperation. And 
it was envisaged through an agreement that, that Mac Evans negotiated, the Enhanced Cooperation Agreement in 1994 with, with NASA, that NASA would be a partner in RadarSat 2. Well, that turned out to be a bit of a disaster, and it was well, mostly... Before we get into that, I should mention to our listeners that Mac Evans, who is the longest-serving president of the Canadian Space Agency, is actually uh, retired now, but he is on the uh, Space Advisory Board. He is on the Space Advisory Indeed, he is. So continue with the story, because it's a very... Yep. And I, I, I wrote so, about the story years ago, but it's okay. fascinating. Well, um, so... Despite my best efforts, the CSA refused to share the, the, the RadarSat-2 requirements when they were developing the RFP with NASA. Big, huge mistake. You know, you've got a major partner, and, and they're not knowing whether or not uh, what they want to get out of RadarSat-2 is actually going to be part of the design. Um, but the excuse that the CSA gave uh, was that it was going to be a competitive RFP the first time that the radars, the radars, the radars that one program had been sole sourced to SPAR, but they had decided this time that RadarSat 2 would be competitive. And that was the excuse they gave. And my big regret is that I didn't go all the way to the president to force the CSA to at least have confidential discussions and disclosures with NASA, as it might have been a whole different story otherwise, and that was my huge... So the relationship was... That was my huge big mistake. I only went as far as the Director General, and I should have gone further. Um, so then in February, so in February 98, MDA was announced as the Red Asset 2 prime contractor. But what came as a huge surprise to not only the US government and NASA, but to me also was that RadarSat 2's resolution would be three meters and that it would be owned and operated by MDA. It would be a commercial venture with the CSA as an anchor tenant. Now, what this, what Canada had not paid attention to was the fact that in 1997, US Secretary of Defense Cohen had issued a, um, uh, what was a classified memo, as it turned out, so maybe we just didn't get to see it, uh, that prohibited the sales of U.S. commercial remote sensing data to anything less than five meters resolution. So here we were bumping up against a U.S. national security issue. Right. Also, at the same time that we that RadarSat 2 was being uh, competed, uh, the NASA JPL was trying to convince uh, NASA headquarters to develop an L-band SAR system that they were calling LightSAR, um, which was they wanted an L-band uh, SAR as opposed to the radar sat being C-band. Um, and uh, so when it was announced that LightSAR in the end never did actually happen, but when it was announced that, that MDA would, uh, would own and operate RadarSat 2, the NASA administrator, Dan Goldstein, said, uh-oh, I can't have this in competition with a potential LightSAR program. I can't. I can't be seen, you know, um, supporting a commercial, foreign commercial venture. Um, you know, it would be the U.S. contractor would be on his on his back. So, um, I spent an entire summer at the request of CSA, uh, Mac Evans at the time, trying to resolve the issue with Washington, and I have to say, without success. And, and Mac was working um, the Ottawa circuit with the then Minister Manley as well. Uh, but it was not resolved, and then in November of that year, uh, 98, I guess, NASA withdrew for the launch for data agreements. So here we were stuck with now... We have to find our own launch, launch and, and pay for it. Yep. Well, but then the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Department of State 
uh, then said, uh-oh, what about this three-meter resolution issue? So we then spent a considerable amount of time negotiating an access control policy with, uh, with, with the U.S. government, and that, that's a policy that went into play, and it controlled how RadarSat 2 data would be subsequently, um, and it's a classified memo, so I can't speak more than to say right. what it is, um, yeah. though I was involved in all the discussions. Um, so when, um, so there was, as you can imagine, this was a hugely emotional on both sides, but it was particularly emotional in, in, the, in Canada because they just thought the CSA seemed to think that NASA and the US had just screwed us, basically. Um, but we, I thought we had learned a lot of lessons. There were a lot of, less, lot of, there were a lot of lessons that we needed to, um, to learn from, because we made mistakes. We've made mistakes on not sharing the requirements with NASA. We've made mistakes by not um, at least having conversations with the U.S. Uh, Defense Department on, you know, the resolution and you know, all those kind of things, right? Um, so finally, uh, about five years later, I think it was about 2002, uh, by now Mark Garneau was the president of the CSA. Uh, and I had a reams of documents on all the negotiations that we that I did trying to s salvage the RadarSat 2 uh, program. Um, I convinced Mark to let me, in conjunction with Mac Evans, who had by then retired, to write a RadarSat 2 lessons learned memo, um, which was subsequently issued uh, the same year, I think, 2002. Um, it was titled RadarSat Lessons Learned. Um, but as I recall, I sent it out as a confidential memo, so it's not, right. it's not in the public domain to my knowledge. But hopefully, um, as the Minister's Office um, looks at the SAB's report, the Space Advisory Board's report, and looks at this critical infrastructure issue, um, they might try and dig out that report. It's got to be in the system somewhere. Um, well, yeah, as a matter of fact... To, uh, to, to, to take heed of what kind of assets should be owned and operated by the Canadian government. I mean, we can subcontract the operations as we did, um, as we've done with several satellites. Um, but I mean, even uh, there was uh, RadarSat 1, I think, was so, you know, the operations center in, in Saint Hubert mm -hmm. was subcontracted back to MDA. Yeah. So they did the actual, you know, operations, the CSA oversight. So. So here we are, 2017, RadarSat uh, Constellation mission. Yep. which is the follow-on to Radar Set 2, is well under construction. Um, it will be, all three satellites will be launched uh, as long as SpaceX manifests hold sometime next summer. Um, and right now, the government is deciding on a data policy yep. for the, for the They've been set. trying to figure out, that I was still working at the CSA when we were trying to figure that. That's not still settled yet? No. Unbelievable. No, as a matter of fact, everybody's waiting to find out what the data policy is going That's to be. That's got to have been going on now for about 10 years or eight years at least, to my knowledge. I, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm well, surprised I think... Uh, and I know there's been a lot of pushback from, from NDA, and, and the former RadarSat International, and that was a big issue yes. uh, because I think the RadarSat 2 contract included a... Um, I can't remember the exact clause now, but there was a clause there that, that gave them the rights to any subsequent RadarSat mission, as I, as I remember. Uh, radar uh, MDA has certainly uh, used RadarSat to, to its benefit. Yep. Um, certainly uh, profited from it and continues to profit from it. 
And there are definitely, uh, I know some people in government who aren't happy with how that all No, and unfortunately it did, it did sour our relationships for several years. It took me a long time to recover with both, uh, not only NASA, but with the National Geospatial Agency. So they, and, 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 the, and the National Ice Service, which comes under NOAA. Um, because, you know, they were getting this data on RadarSat 1 for free. And then they were f- stuck with the idea of having to buy RadarSat 2 data. Um, well, it's going to be very time. interesting to see what happens going forward because we don't know what the data policy is. Uh, MDA is the prime contractor for all three satellites yeah. uh, with several subcontractors across the country. Uh, and... MDA is close to uh, closing its acquisition of Digital Globe, which yeah. uh, does a significant portion of geospatial intelligence with uh, DO with the U.S. government. Yep. So uh, lots in that space to to consume if you're in in, in government trying to figure out what what the data policy is going to be. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't envy them. Well, since I'm now retired, <laughs> I could say that um, in my in my opinion, radars, the RadarSat Constellation mission should be the bulk of the data should be free for the Canadian government to use as it so wishes, even with international partners. Um, now, whether that's 100%, 90%, 80%, I don't know, but... Um, it's it's got to be in that neighborhood, with all due respect to to MDA's, you know, marketing plans. Okay. Because it's, well, the public's paying for it. It's part of, exactly. I mean, they try to claim it's a public-private partnership, but as memory serves me correctly, it's about ninety-five percent Canadian government and five percent MDA or some such. Um, anyway, we'll find I, out this fall, and and definitely. I I got to get some bad emails. I think <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> Oh, well. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you still have lots of friends at MDA. Um, all right, so let's move on. I to think s- they've all retired, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like me. <laughs> so, can, okay, so let's go back to the, to, to the report here. And um, another one of the themes was the um, continuity of policies and sustainable uh, funding. Key proposal uh, for that was to pursue a balanced space program that includes all areas where Canada has world-class expertise, contains activities in all phases, studies, program, definition, design, and build and operate, and has an appropriate mix of flagship uh, major programs and smaller, shorter duration missions. Um, so I think this part was, you know, very much yep. in the pre-document that came out. So uh, your thoughts on that part of it? Well, I have actually a fairly longish answer to that one um, because this goes to how we managed our program and our relationship with NASA and, in fact, with ESA and other spacefaring nations. And so, um, obviously, when I was in Washington, I gave lots of presentations um, including at the International Space University about the Canadian space program, uh, but also um, with um, identifying the factors that have contributed to our success and um, rationale that we used back then, and I hopefully they still do, um, how we used to decide on how we, how we would make contributions. So, uh, and I just dug out some of the bullets. Um, uh, so in regard to factors contributing to our success, these, this was what we 
used to use as our, as our kind of our baseline. Uh, the ability to identify, nurture, and combine science and technology, uh, to focus on areas where Canada excels, to have deliberate and focused investments, and importantly, anticipate the future through advanced R&D. We also had uh, a Team Canada approach. It wasn't just the CSA, it was the CSA, it was academia, other government departments. We're all involved in how we decided what, what we would contribute to which science mission, for example. So the Team Canada approach is, would now be called the whole of government approach, the way yeah. they're saying it now? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, well, no, no, because we would involve industry and academia, oh, okay. the scientific community. Yeah, it's part of the Team Canada, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we also had some guidelines as to how we would um, decide on our contributions. And we decided that our contributions, and this was more in the context of when the, we were working on the Bush vision for going back to the moon, etc. But it, but it kind of applied to, to other things as well. So we decided our contribution should be early, scalable, and transferable. That means we participate in the first missions with technologies that can be scaled up or would be applicable to other missions. Um, and I think there's, there's a fair number of examples of that, even in, in, in CISAT and the James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, these are technologies that we've used in other, in other, on other missions. Mm-hmm. Um, we also strive to make sure that our contributions would be critical to our partner, visible, and welcomed by our partner. Um, we weren't there to just be a free, a free loader. Um, and some of the decision criteria that we used when trying to decide what we would contribute and, and to which mission would be uh, that it would be visible, mm-hmm. e.g., the Canadarm, or meaningful. For example, our med instrument on the uh, the 2007 NASA Phoenix Mars lander um, right. mission uh, that it sh- that they should meet Canadian science goals. Importantly, that they should use Canadian enabling and heritage technologies. And I work on heritage technologies because um, we have a wonderful reputation for having developed niche technologies and, and, and developed those further. Right. Um, it's like the synthetic aperture radar. For example. Exactly. Yeah. Um, another decision criteria was that it, would, that it would develop sustainable core competencies. So this goes to growing our space industry, right? And then in the case of uh, human space exploration, we had some additional bullets, uh, uh, things that we would look at, which would be result in Canadians flying in space and then be consistent with the global exploration strategy, which was developed by the International Space Exploration Coordination Group, which was one of my final... um, one of the final. Uh, when, when I was in Washington, I was blessed uh, with the ability, with the to being allowed to be involved in many international activities. Uh, the International Space Station, the Group on Earth Observations, which was led by Environment Canada, and then the International Space Exploration Coordination Group. So that was. Uh, and that group. I, is, I was really quite privileged. That group right it's still now active, is. As far in, as in, sorry. It's still active. Not only is it active, but it's actually based on the way I've perceived. Uh, different space programs developing right now, it seems to be critical uh, for yep. uh, moving forward with international cooperation on this, you know, going back well, to the moon, yep. 
uh, and then you know on well, to it, Mars. Well, it started the way the way the international space the international space exploration coordinator group started was when George W. Bush came up with his uh, U.S. space. Uh, vision for U.S. space That's exploration, right. which was the return to the moon and beyond, blah, 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 blah. Uh, NASA held for over a year a series of, of conferences and meetings with their international partners. And after about a year and a half, there were 13, there were 12 core space world, world space agencies that were, that were participating in all these NASA missions, so the 13 agencies yeah. all told. And it was from that that we developed the... Um, well, so then those 13 agencies got together um, ad, in a somewhat ad hoc manner, and I was blessed to be involved in that, to develop the global exploration strategy. So that was back in whenever it was. Um, Long time 2007. 2007 okay, I thought it was, was a little bit before that, but yeah. No, I think maybe 2007. And it's ongoing. But They're still working but, on it. And then the global exploration strategy caused the creation of the International Space Exploration Coordination Group, and then, and yes, and, and the work's continued, and, and it's been a, a... They'll be meeting in Australia shortly mm -hmm. at the International uh, Astronautical Congress. Congress. Yes, I'm sure they will. Um, so that's interesting. Um, another one of the themes, uh, which is uh, uh, when I was with the Canadian Space Commerce Association, which I was advocated for, and, um, and, and to this day I still... Uh, uh, try to work with uh, uh, the new uh, millennials and the younger generation is this outreach and education programs to inspire <laughs> and prepare Canadians. Absolutely. Uh, so this is one of the key proposals, or, yep. or sorry, one of the uh, themes. Uh, the key proposal that the um, Space Advisory Board has put forward is to establish a comprehensive outreach and educational program to involve Canadians of all ages in the Canadian space program and to encourage youth to pursue careers in science and technology. And um, I, I will put in one word in this before I, I get your thoughts on this. Um, I have seen a resurgence in the last couple of years uh, in uh, by students uh, and not uh, uh, and what I'm talking about is at the university level with their interest in participating in space. Uh, in fact, the uh, and of course the uh, SEDS Yep. which uh, I think you've been yep. a part of. Uh, no, but I know. I'm, I'm, you know, uh, well, which for, is the yep. Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Space, yep, 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 yep. Uh, I mean, I, I know, I know the, the players. They, they've been doing some, some great work the last couple of years, but now there's also, uh, and there's other movements that are starting to grow out of that. Uh, in Montreal, for instance, and uh, I just learned of this recently, the different student groups in Montreal have created a Montreal Space Students Association. No, oh, interesting. And they are putting together a Montreal Space Symposium, October 5th and 6th, I think, at uh, Place Ville-Marie. And so I thought, well, that's a great idea. But, you know, here we are at the end of August. They don't have much time to get this put together. But they seem to have been working in stealth mode because they already have 200 people registered. <laughs> that's great. That's and, and they have some key speakers that are coming. And I'm not going to take So much for iPhones and social media. <laughs> Facebook. Facebook is, is is where they actually got a lot of yeah, their, yeah. their their disseminated their message. But so we have these types of things that are grassroots that are growing on their own in mm. the last few years, which is great. Yeah. And they've had to do it on their own because, because 
The Harper government, as you may remember, came out with an edict, I don't know quite exactly when it was, but that um, departments had to cancel any program that was not specifically part of their mandate. Obviously, it was a cost-cutting measure. Um, and sadly, that meant that Steve McLean was forced to cancel uh, the CSA's educational program, education outreach program, which is just, which was phenomenal. I mean, NASA has... Um, it's part of their mandate. ...led the way in many ways. Um, and Marilyn Steinberg, God bless her, and she's had to subsequently, as a result of the cancellation of the CSA program, she's had to leave the CSA. I think she's now with Western University. She's at Western, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, she developed a fantastic education but with, with our staff, but, you know, she was the lead. Um, and Marilyn was also the force behind the creation of the International Space Exploration Board, which, which is, that was created in 2005, and it comprised the CSA, NASA, ESA, Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, and CNES, the French Space Agency. And as far as I know, that's still going quite strong. So that's so she was even able to take national educational initiatives to the international level. God bless her. And, and she, I just she, hope she, she left the CSA like she had to, um, and um, because of uh, the budget cuts. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure that she was reassigned, but I'm sure the reassignment wasn't to, to her liking or, or expertise. Yeah. But she did continue on. Uh, and like you said, she's at Western. And uh, at Western, um, she was actually working with the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, I kept, I'm, I'm, I've unfortunately lost track of her a bit, but anyway. Well, she was. she's not working with them now. I think she's still a Facebook friend. But that's about it. <laughs> she's still at Western, but uh, she's moved on from the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration. And she was actually quite uh, uh, instrumental in getting uh, that group uh, led by... Uh, or, well, I suppose now back to being led by Gordon Ozinski, uh, who actually mm -hmm. uh, did work at the CSA at one point uh, early in his career. Uh, but anyway, she, she's, she has done some, some good work at the CSA, and then mm -hmm. uh, I followed up on, on it when she went to Western. But yes, so the, the Harper government went out and they <laughs> forced the Canadian Space Agency to zero out that education budget. Uh, earlier this year in my first uh, ever podcast, uh, I had uh, Sylvain Laporte, the current... Yeah. President of the Canadian Space Agency. Yeah, I, I, I heard that. I, I did actually listen to that one. And he... I was uh, surprised to find out that he'd been a space nerd most of his life. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things he's done is that they've realized internally that, you know, this is important. And so they've had... And they still do some educational work. And so they've had to rejig a little yeah. bit budget from here, there, to, to be able to do what they're doing. Put but it back on. They yes. would certainly like to have an official, yeah. you know, okay... You know, it's part of yeah. your mandate, part of your program, yeah. and here is some budget for it. Because, right. you know, that budget, well, I think the last year, it was over $2 million uh, for the budget, but it, it went, you know, Marilyn and the rest of the group there yeah. made it go far. Yeah, they certainly did. In fact, one of the things that Marilyn did that I remember now was that um, during the summer, this just during the school breaks, they ran at the CSA headquarters, it was a, either a week or 10 days, they, they invited teachers from right across the country to come into town and they would be given presentations by all of the key directorates at the Canadian Space Agency. Um, and, as, and from what I remember, um, these teachers basically came on their own dime. 
Um, so there was a huge amount of interest. I remember that. Yeah. yeah, that was another wonderful program that I believe Marilyn was the, uh, the brains behind. So, you know, she needs a lot of credit. Okay, so we, we, we've spent a lot of time focused on the first recommendation and the, um, uh, the uh, issues that uh, were part of that. Uh, but we haven't touched on recommendation number two. And I just want to, uh, as we close the podcast, I just want to uh, get your thoughts on this. Because recommendation number two was the future role of the Space Advisory Board itself. So, uh, and in that... The um, they put forward that the it is recommended that the board be asked to provide independent or independent advice on the implementation of the space strategy by continuing discussions with uh, Innovation Space and Ex- uh, Economic Development Canada and the CSA on implementation plans, continuing a dialogue with the community of stakeholders to follow up and expand on the creative ideas made by participants to ensure they are considered during the implementation of the strategy, uh, discussing as appropriate the space activities of other governments, uh, departments developing metrics for evaluation of the implementation plans, uh, evaluating implementation plans against agreed metrics, and advising the minister on our findings. So what did you think of that part of the Um, report? Does the CSA still have an is there still an advisory council, or does that get did I get there was the CSA advisory council at one point wasn't there after I retired I think yeah was, I it, don't know if that I don't think the, that exists anymore I mean the Canadian Space Agency um, the Canadian Space Program needs I think outside it needs a, a an independent. Um, oversight committee of some sort. NASA has the NASA Advisory Council. That's right, yes. Uh, which has rotating members uh, and, and a, a quite diverse. I mean, at one point, you know, the, the film producer James Cameron was on that, which is where I got to meet him, and the, um, which was really interesting. Um, <laughs> and uh, I also got into the ISC in Vancouver to be on the plenary. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just bragging. Uh then uh, the other uh, organization that, that um, has an influence on NASA, the U.S. space programs, is the uh, Space Studies Board, which is part of the National Research Council of the U.S. Right. Uh, I think it's called the Research Council? I think so, yeah. National Research Council, yeah. 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 So we don't have, in Canada, to my knowledge, anything like either of those two. So that's all to say... Um, I think the Space Advisory Board did a wonderful job with their first round of consultations, and I think it might be well, very appropriate for them to continue their work. Um, whether it needs to be expanded, I mean, whether the, the, the it's a large enough group with a diverse enough... Um, Should they have, like, the um, if the Space Advisory Board is to continue and it has a set mandate... Should they have members that rotate on a two-year basis where, and I just came up with that number, so that you can refresh the board and some of the people who are on the board may have to go off and do, you know, because yeah. they don't get paid to do this. This is all volunteer work. Yeah. Uh, so that they then go off and do, uh, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. Right. And we get other voices as part of the Space Advisory Board. Uh, 
yes, I'm not sure how NASA's uh, space advi- uh, their own advisory board works. I, I'm not the council, sh- yeah. The council, sorry, I'm, I'm not sure that it's there's a there's a term limit. There might there might well be actually. I actually think there is a, yeah, a term limit, but you can't remember. But you can you can renew if you want. You to. can renew it. Yeah, yes. yeah. So yeah, so yes, I would say yes that um, I think that's a good. A good model to follow. Because I mean, uh, if but, the, but then you know, for example, and going back, uh, because it's the only council that I'm, I know of, it's the NASA Advisory Council and, and the Space Studies Board. But the council, I mean, it has about fifteen members, I think, and then it has subcommittees. They have subcommittees. Um, so you know, looking at you know space science, Earth observation, human spaceflight, right. so different, uh, and so maybe uh, we need to think about that kind of model yeah i don't Uh, think um you know when the space advisory board was announced um and when they started to do their work the idea would be a one-off i think well no no actually they were told you're going to work on this and then you'll continue on Uh, but but what you're going to continue on and what you're going to do was TBD. Right. And I think they've gone out and said, well, if we're going to continue on, this recommendation number two is RTBD. Right. 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 This, 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 this is the way we think it should be done, which I think is, uh, some people might say it's self-serving, but on the other hand, you know, somebody yeah. had to come up with, yeah. you know, what's next? Yeah. Yeah. I must admit when I, I, I could see that people would think it was self-serving and perhaps I thought so initially. Um, but quickly changed my mind. Right. Because we don't have uh, in Canada a, an external advisory, anything for space. No. And, and we need it. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, what do they got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty it's a good size. It's a good size, but maybe, you know, they should add a couple more or something. But we're, from, if, figure out what discipline they're missing yeah like military space yeah. or someone with experience in military space yeah um, well anyway so I, I think can, um, uh, we were supposed to get a space strategy in June <laughs> yeah uh, that didn't happen and of course it, the reason it didn't happen is pretty straightforward which is the space advisory board was had to do to do well, I had work. to do its work, but it was... To inform the strategy. And and it was supposed to be formed in January, yeah. originally, um, and not in uh, April. So, yeah. so, you know, timing was... So, was I have, so having having worked in Washington and Ottawa, briefly <laughs> Ottawa, um, I pitied the poor souls who are happy to put this together within six months because <laughs> there's a lot of consultation required amongst other government departments right if it's if it's being led by um, industry science and, and economic development and also my which sources, I presume it is and, and my sources told me that some of the feedback that they heard um, you know prompted them to put a pause to rethink what the, the the government strategy what their strategy not the actual space strategy but what their strategy would be to roll out the space strategy right uh, including uh, uh, concrete action uh, it's um, it's pretty clear uh, to the people I've talked to in industry and quite a lot of people uh, that you know they're tired of 
the same old just words and yeah, you know, we need action. Yeah, it's been too oh, long. Oh, absolutely, we need action. I mean, so and that, and that was the call I, to action, which was one of the I, the points. The, the last action plan we had was in two thousand and three, long term space plan three. Right. Um, so I mean, there's been fourteen dribbling, years ago, dribbling amounts of money to save the space station extension and stuff like that, but nothing. No. no. And, and the budget, to the credit to the government, because mm-hmm. it doesn't happen very often, actually singled out a few space things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So that was great. But they're small, they're very good, but they were very small, you know, ticket items, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at this point. So uh, we will see what happens this fall. Everybody is yeah. waiting. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be, uh, there's several conferences uh, scheduled in the fall, the mm-hmm. Canadian um, uh, Space Summit, the uh, Aerospace Summit, yeah. uh, and I think the Canadian Space Policy Symposium is also supposed to happen. So all these things yeah. are going to happen, and I think at that point we're going we're gonna to hear something from the government. Yeah. I, I, I would like to make... One comment, and sure. when we're talking about radar, sat, and so on and so forth, my, my current hobby project is reconciliation with our indigenous peoples, and I and that's just something I'm doing uh, privately. Um, but uh, I was really disappointed when the uh, uh, the Pearl Robert, the what was it, the commu- uh, weather and communication satellite, the PCW, PCW, the Polar Communications Communication weather, weather Satellite, yeah, was. Uh, as far as I know, it's been can- basically cancelled or was sure. never launched. I mean, never, never funded. That's right. And and I was so so sad. I mean, I was involved in a lot of the early work on trying to get that on the agenda. Um, and how the CSA, you know, we studied different orbits, what would work, what wouldn't work, because they went through several, yeah, uh, different ideas on that. Uh, and I was just really really sad because. You know what our northern communicate northern communities need is not only better weather prediction services, which we all need up north with climate change, but but also their communication services. So I read somewhere that um, one of our northern communities, one fairly large one, its um, um, uh, communication, its internet infrastructure, is about the equivalent of a, what's in a child's bedroom down here. I mean, you know that's. Mm-hmm. the scope of it and and we need to improve you know we we can provide them with telemedicine teleeducation services and stuff like that which i think is you know, so there's two things in that area should be so going there- a long way towards helping the government's agenda on reconciliation the space sector can provide services that are long overdue including producing you know we've done a lot of work um in fact our friend keith cowing started devon island yeah, you know, well, that was back, Keith and I, yeah. Back a long time ago, um, figuring out how to grow vegetables in space. And they started with growing, as you know, growing vegetables in greenhouses well, in the Arctic. And I don't understand why we are not growing, why we're not developing that technology to help our northern communities. So, okay, so lots there in what you just <laughs> said. <laughs> I um, know, but my hobby horse, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'll say a couple things to that. Uh, one, yes, uh, Keith and I, uh, bought, donated, and built with others a greenhouse on Devon Island, yep. which was used by the Canadian Space Agency, yep. uh, and which some good research uh, came out of it. And uh, now, this is the unfortunate part of it. 
that research and uh, is still ongoing in Canada, but not in the high Arctic, at least not at that location. Uh, there is a new uh, effort underway, which I'll, I'll talk about in uh, a future episode uh, with the DLR and Matt Bamsey, who was up in the Arctic, mm-hmm. who is now working with the DLR, who is about to ship a new facility to the Antarctic. All right. And uh, Matt was one of the finalists in the astronaut uh, candidate selection mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a great guy, very smart. Uh, so he's doing something in the Antarctic, and we're going to talk about that in another show. Um, there is some greenhouses in the Arctic that are being used to grow food, uh, but it's on a small scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to remember. How <laughs> for the new Arctic Research Station, which is and the, soon sorry, to be opened. Right. The Arctic, you know, that, that's one great thing that the Hopper government did actually do. So going back to <laughs> PCW, there is a follow-on satellite constellation, one or two satellites, depending on how it's going to go. There's an RFI that's coming out in the fall, but it's strictly on the military side, communication side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but... Um, the government isn't doing anything to replace PCW, as it were, for to help the northern communities, right, per se. Right. But there is the initiative of... All this is dual-use technology. There is the initiative of OneWeb, which is going to be the first large constellation that's going to get rolled out. And because of um, um, the mechanics... Uh, and the geography and the rest of it, they're actually going to be launching the first satellites in that 700-plus constellation, which will provide uh, new services to the north. Okay, good. Um, It's going to start in Canada. Like, it's a global effort, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. the first satellites are going to be able to service the northern areas of Canada. Good, good. Um, So that is a private venture, and I know they've talked to government. They've testified in front of government. So we'll see if there's any more work between the two. MDA is providing the antennas for that. Um, so PCW itself is dead, but there are other things that are sort of filling the gaps. Way. Hopefully, yeah. we'll fill the gaps. Yeah. Good. Excellent. All right. I'd like to thank Graham for being my guest today on the Space Q podcast. Um, perhaps in the future, we'll wind up talking about more policy. Thank you, Mark. That was a, it was a, a pleasure to be on on, on the podcast. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spacecube.ca or you can post them on our website at spacecube.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find Space Cube on Twitter at Canada in Space and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at the Space Cube and don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher and if we're connected, you'll get Space Q articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing review if you're so inclined.